presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They've been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for the creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today we talk to journalist and author Mark I. Jacobson. We talk about his new book, about uh, it's a science fiction book, but it's about the world as it is and politics, and it's very interesting and complex, but fascinating. I think you'll enjoy it. Here's Mark. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sherry. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Pretty good. Just sitting here in Las Vegas looking at a clear sky with a little bit higher humidity than we're used to. We're used to around 15%, and now it's around 50 Which Yeah, our humidity is high, too. Usually this is when it gets um, dry heat, which I prefer. And But our humidity is really bad. Climate change, ooh. Um. <laughs> yes, I know. It's, uh, it's affecting everyone including Las Vegas. We're in the middle of a drought, and we need the rain, so nobody complains. Oh, it hasn't been raining? We haven't had any rain. We have cloudbursts. It's very strange. We will have cloudbursts for 20 minutes and then nothing. But anything is better than nothing. So we're we're very That's happy good. with every bit of rain that we get. I I love watching nature shows, and it's really fascinating how – just a little cloudburst, and all of a sudden, all these animals that have been suffering, and bugs, and all these different uh, living creatures that have been suffering from the drought, they, the flowers will open up, they will get their honeysuckles, or they will have their, their prey, everything just opens up, just from a little bit of rain. It's, and that's how important rain is, how, how important water is. Well, here it's a little bit more important because we have the Hoover Dam and the reservoir, and the reservoir is really, really low, and that is responsible for electricity not only for our state but for the surrounding states, California and Utah and and Arizona. So we're hoping we get rain, but we need it over a long period of time, not all at once. Because we are the desert, and we get it all at once, we get flooding. But yeah, um, why is it that we either get too much rain and flooding, or not enough rain and drought? It's like this weird dichotomy. Yeah, I know, and it's it's uh, it's gotten worse over the years. But uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, we keep expanding, at least in this town, and we're realizing we can't keep doing that. We need resources, and the resources are being depleted. So they're starting yeah. to cut back, something something they should have done 20 years ago, but they're starting to do it now. Did you hear about the moon wobble that's going to cause uh, uh, rains and flooding and all this other stuff next year? No, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, apparently... I, I the trajectory of the moon, it has a little tiny wobble outside of it. It's projected that it'll have a little bit of, just a little bit of a move outside its normal uh, rotation around the Earth, and that 
tiny little wobble will affect the oceans and the rivers and the lakes to the point that we're going to have flooding. Well, that I can believe because the moon, uh, the gravitational pull does affect tides and things like that. So I, I could believe that. Um, I think it's time for us to start rethinking about living near coastal areas, uh, such as Miami. Especially the low ones, the ones that are so low, like Florida and New Orleans. Well, New Orleans, I mean, they they get flooded now every year, and at some point somebody should have to sit down and say, this is going to keep happening. We either have to move or build differently, and they don't. They just keep rebuilding. So who knows what's going to happen. There are some people that I think it was in Florida. There's like um, an architect who's lobbying for um, uh, some plant, which I can't remember what the plan is, that was ripped out of the Everglades because it wasn't pretty. And it's, But what it did was stop the flooding of the Everglades and then most of the rest of Florida because it was also down the whole coast and bring this plant back, which I can't remember the plant, and also to build uh, with knowledge that they're going to get flooded and still survive and still live in Florida. I think it's a great idea. I just wonder if the government of Florida will go for it. Well, as I always like to say, we are our own worst enemies. Uh, mm-hmm. We do things, and then we, 10, 20, 30 years later, we lament over what's happening and say, how did this happen, and don't realize that we did it. You know, We do that a lot. Oh, yes. <laughs> a lot, oh, yes. a lot. We, Too much. We do that in all sorts of things. Uh, we need to uh, uh, we need to take down all the trees because we want to have that land to build houses. But that those trees are part of how we breathe, like in the Amazon. Um, this, the whole world breathes because of the Amazon's considered the lungs of the world. But we're going to knock them all down anyway. Well, yeah, and it, it also comes down to money. I mean logging and the related things to getting rid of those trees uh, bring in a lot of money. And, you know, we have a what's-in-it-for-me mentality around the world, especially these days, and it's what's-in-it-for-me right now without thinking about the future. The funny thing is, and uh, I'm going to do a blatant plug here, uh, my book series, the first book of which is out, deals with exactly that. Uh, it's a it's about an, an alien being who has come down to Earth specifically uh, to monitor us because uh, they want to see if there's a way to reverse the way we think so that we don't end up uh, eradicating ourselves from the planet. In other words, getting rid of humanity in total. And that's part of how they see things because 
um, this alien being, and I won't say alien because it's really not person, it's more of a uh, it's more of an in- intelligence uh, has seen it happen on versions of Earth, multiverses uh, of Earth, and they know it's going to happen to us. And the objective is to see if it can be stopped. And it's what we do. You know, we are our own worst enemies, as I said, and uh, we will eventually be responsible for our own demise. Yeah, I mean, when I was a little girl, um, very little, they used to have a duck and cover in my uh, kindergarten and first grade class because that was the way we're supposed to protect ourselves from the atom bomb, which is sort of laughable if you know what the atom bomb does. But we always are doing well, yeah, that to ourselves. Right, but, but the funny thing about that was uh, we were supposed to duck under our desks and thinking back, I never knew those desks were so uh, well built um, that they could withstand the after effects or the blast from an atomic weapon. But I guess they were. (laughs) I mean, they had that, when I was growing up, they had that metal piece at the bottom that you could put your books in and the wood at the top, and the, the chair was attached. So I'm guessing they were strong enough to withstand an atomic blast. But it's the way we—it's—it's it's the way we thought. I mean, it, it, looking back now, we can laugh, but they took that very seriously back I then. I know. I know. Now we look at you it know, and say was, it's totally ridiculous. You know. But I can I can remember our teacher saying it will save your life. Go back under your desk. You, no, no, you can't go to the bathroom. Go back under your desk during this. I'm like, now looking back, I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> it was a magic disc. It had a force field around it that could stop just about anything. It was an amazing disc. Wish I had that disc. Yeah, amazing. Now. Amazing what it could do. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it could stop bullets. It could stop atomic blasts. It could stop anything. It was like Superman. It was. It was just amazing. The, the people that developed that desk didn't get enough credit. I mean, no, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, they should have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize or something for the best desk ever yeah. created. For, yeah. I mean, let's face it. So, you know, we, I don't know. It it kind of amazes me at times because we're we're capable of, doing great things, but we seem to focus on doing not-so-great things, and it just amazes me, you know. We, we we kill ourselves because our skin color is different, or our religious beliefs are different, or our political beliefs are different. And so we just kill ourselves. And you know, I I, I like to say that the reason aliens don't make themselves known and visit this planet is because somewhere out in space, way beyond our capabilities, is a giant fence, and on that fence is a sign that says, "Don't go past this Do area. Not it's enter. a toxic zone." Yeah, it's a toxic <laughs> I, zone. Yeah. 
toxic zone. Do not enter. Danger. Yeah. So the aliens kind of stay away from us because, you know, they know that. But... uh, So what are the uh, spaceships that have been in the news lately then? (laughs) Oh, don't get me started on that one. Uh, (laughs) I, I... I, first of all, I'm going to go on record and saying I love what private industry is doing. Private industry is doing what NASA couldn't do because mm-hmm. they never had the funding or the ability to, to do it. But having reusable rockets like SpaceX and the other companies are great because that will enhance our ability to get into space. Uh, a lot of what goes on on the International Space Station is research that can't be done here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Because of, of gravity, and that does make life better on Earth. Having said that, I still can't get over the fact that you can launch a giant phallic symbol into space, <laughs> like Jeff Bezos did, uh, <laughs> and not see that. It was. Uh, it's done more for comedy writers, and I think anything in the last year. The only um, thing good about there, that is that a woman who, I can't remember what her name is, just blanked Wally out. Wally Funk. Yes. Wally Funk. I'm and, so happy to hear that she finally made it into space. That was the only thing that I really cared about that flight was that she, you know, and in, in, I think she's in her 80s. Isn't she like 82? She's like 80, 83 or 84 years old, yeah. And she finally made it. And I give her credit. I don't know if I could withstand the G's, you know, four and five G's on my body, uh, which is, you know, four or five times the the force of gravity on your body. And she did. So I I give her credit for that. That that made me happy. Of the whole news story, when I heard she went up, it was like about time. Um, they should have done that as her as the guest on like the space shuttle instead of a senator or something, you know. When, yeah, I, I well, don't I mean, want her to end Sen- up. Yeah, they had Senator Glenn go up on the space shuttle because obviously he was the first uh, um, man to orbit the Earth. No, it wasn't John um, Glenn. The, the, the first sure senator I'm talking was, about wasn't John Glenn. Who was the first it was a, it was a different senator. Huh. It was like he was with uh, appropriate uh, appro- what do you call it M- money um, for NASA. Oh, I didn't. I actually didn't know about that one. Yeah, but know, John I, I Glenn did go later. Yeah, he he went up there, and I thought that was a great idea. But you know, the, the thing about it is. By doing these things and, and sending billionaires into space, I mean, everybody yells about it. You're sending billionaires. They're just having fun. It's a stunt. Yeah. It brings attention to it. Yeah. But the bottom line is these are basically, they're basically acting like test pilots and creating mm-hmm. a rocket and, and peripherals that can be reused and are cheaper and will allow us to do better research for less money that will enhance life on Earth. So, yeah, if a billionaire wants to go into space, go for it. 
I don't care. It's what comes out of it that matters. People don't realize how much of technology that we all, like the cell phone, all of the technology we take for granted that came from space. Um, uh, the oh, Teflon GPS. that we're all used to using for yeah. our pots and pans and all, and all the other stuff that came from Apollo. Um, I mean, so many things came from space, uh, stuff we take for granted. Well, that's 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 it. We don't know about it because we just use it and accept it and think it's always been there. But I mean, who doesn't use GPS? That didn't just come out yeah. of thin air. Yeah. You know. That that was uh, NASA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But and but all now, the and all the archaeological well, sites that are being found via NASA are uh, different GPS methods. That's also NASA. We would never have found half of the stuff in Egypt and all the other important stuff that they've been finding without NASA. I mean, it's ridiculous right. not to accept that space is important. And, well, see, the bottom line is NASA never stood up and took credit for all this stuff. They just, no. it happened and they it became it. part of our daily life and people accepted it. Even yeah. orange juice. But if well, yeah, who couldn't forget Tang? <laughs> uh, but, 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 the fa- but the fact of the matter is, if NASA had said, hey, look at what we're doing, and look at what we gave you, everybody would have known, but they didn't do that. They just said, okay, well, it works, and now it's part of daily life, and everybody's happy. Because it was the government. Because now you've not- got private industry that can take it even further. And also, NASA wasn't focused on that. NASA was focused on the re- the actual research and what these products that, like microwaves, uh, all the stuff that we use today that NASA has done, they were focused on what they were going to do on their spaceships, on the the Apollo missions and on space shuttle and all that stuff, and now on the ISS. That's what they're focused on. They're not focused on, oh, look at us. <laughs> no, and they, they weren't. But, see, all this stuff came out of the quest to land on the moon. I mean, when you think about the fact that, that you have more computing power in your cell phone than they had to land on the moon. Yep. That's really incredible. How I mean, about by more, Voyager, I mean two or three times more. How about Voyager, which is still going, that has about, like, what was it, like one hundredth of a part of our cell phone? And it's, they're, in, they're still going, and it's still sending back data. <laughs> That's right, and it's funny you should mention Voyager, because that plays a big part of my book. The reason the alien comes to our planet is because they intercept that golden disc on one of the two voyagers and they come down to our planet. Or she comes down to our It comes down to our planet. And what it does, and I know I'm talking about my book, but I love talking about my book. Uh, That's fine. That's what you're here for. (laughs) what, What it does is 
she on that disc we had music, we had voice, we had still shots uh, from around the world, and the entity no, takes the form of one of the African relief workers that were on that disc, a young African American woman, and takes that form here on Earth. And that, um, every book I write, whether it's, whether it's, I've, I've got a journalistic background. I was trained as a journalist and I have a very big social conscience so that every book I write, whether it's my nonfiction book or, or books that are coming up or fiction series, uh, has a social conscience. And I specifically chose an African American woman as the form that the alien life form would take to start bringing, and this is way before the uh, George Floyd incident in in, uh, in Minnesota or the marches or anything like that. I came up with this idea several years ago. Uh, and she will, she's learning about our planet. And she will learn what it's like to be a young black person on our planet in coming books. In fact, I've put the prologue for the next book in the series, uh, which I have entitled. The books are called The Year of My Life, VR.com. As far as I know, it's the first time a book's ever been named a URL, a website. But if you go to that website, the book is a what I call a continuum series, which I also think is unique, uh, in that the story ends in the book. The actual story ends, so there is a mystery, there's an adventure, there's, oh, there's a lot of stuff. There's a murder in there, uh, and the story ends, but then it continues on the website and goes into the next book. And the characters, the two main characters, uh, one of whom is called the writer. Uh, gee, the writer is in his late 60s. He's short. He walks with crutches. And he looks a lot like George Clooney. But it's not me. Um, but, 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 but the writer who never has a name to the reader. The writer takes names as he needs them. The only person who knows his real name is Victoria, who is this alien being who has taken the form of an African-American woman, young woman, and she never discloses his name either. Um, so it's the writer and Victoria, but after the story, after the book is over, they continue into the actual world. Um, and they have conversations in the actual world. In fact, all the characters continue uh, with like a little side story and a continuation of that story, and that will then follow into the next story. And so in that, in that vein, I have actually posted the early, the early draft of the prologue of the next book on the website, and um, so you can read the prologue, which doesn't tell you anything about the story, but it sets the tone. 
And by the way, if anyone wants to read the first book, it is a free down download on every platform. And in fact, there are links on the website, top of the page. We can just download the book. It's a fast read. It's a fun read. But the next book, the next prologue, deals with discrimination. Now, the story will not deal with discrimination. It'll just be an undertone of the of the book. There'll be another murder. There'll be, I can't say there'll be another murder, but there'll be another mystery. The book has everything. There's something in there for everyone. If you like stories about friends, there's something there. About, there's, there's aliens in there in the form of Victoria. Uh, there's, there's usually a murder or a mystery. Uh, as someone described my book, and I put the quote because I loved it, it's like Sam Spade meets science fiction. <laughs> so that there's something for everybody. You don't have to. You can't. You don't have to look at it and say, "Well, it's science fiction." I don't read science fiction because that's not what it's all about. There's a lot of humor in it, and hopefully, it makes you laugh, makes you cry, makes you think. There's a lot of stuff. But the fact is, the character, the writer, has a blog in the book, which is an actual blog outside of the book that he continues. So, What's the name of the book again? The name of the book is the same as the name of the website, the year of my life, VR.com. As I said, oh. it's, I think it's the first time a book has ever been named a website, titled a website. <laughs> well, you got two things I love. I love mysteries and I love science fiction. So I'm a huge fan of both, so got me. <laughs> there's a lot of, and, there, and, and there's humor in there. And the thing about it is, is the characters, you learn about the characters as the book goes on. You learn about the characters on the website. Um, but the writer learns, they they kind of get to the middle. The writer will become more like the alien being in the way he looks at things. The alien being, the longer that she's here, becomes more human in the way she looks at things and and learns about things. So it's a lot about human nature as well. Um but that's, which makes it fun. And well, I don't know about I don't know about aliens, but that's normal when you get to know different people from different uh parts of the world and uh different beliefs and stuff. Once you get to know the real people, your your ideas change and you grow. I mean, that's what's good in the world. Exactly. And I and that's the point I was trying to get across that it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you believe or how you think everybody has something that they can gain from knowing someone else. And we're all alike in that regard. Um uh, it's a yeah. little bit pie in the sky kind of thinking, but it's true. I mean, it's 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 a universal truth. You know, we all get hungry. I think that's why it's important. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say I think that's why it's important for young people to travel to meet different people from their uh, their life, um, go to different uh cultures even within our country go to different cultures within our country and go with different cultures outside of our country 
it's really important to do that because it opens you up. Well, the problem we have is that people love to be part of a group. And they love to believe that their group is better than any other group. And that's where we have a problem. Because yeah, it doesn't that's matter what, what the group is, whether it's a political group, whether it's a religious group, uh, it doesn't matter what the group is. You want to believe that the group that you chose is better than any other group out there because that means you're right, you're better. And unfortunately, in recent years, we have gravitated more towards groups than being individual. I've always lived my life as an individual. Um, I agree with people on certain things. I don't agree with them on certain things. And they could be the same person. They could be very good friends. Mm -hmm. I I agree. Some of my closest friends don't agree with me politically. Guess what? It doesn't matter. That's only Mm -hmm. one part of them. It's not who they are. You know, if if they believe in the opposite political dogma than I believe in, it doesn't matter to me. We don't hate each other. You know, and I grew up that way. Um, one of my closest friends, and we're still friends on Instagram, well, he's on the other side of the country, so... We're friends on Instagram and Twitter, but we grew up together in the same town. And I write about this in my first book. I'm going to put another blatant plug in because you can get it out of the library. Uh, (laughs) If you have have Hoopla Digital, uh, you can get it out of the library. And it's going to be on more library systems in the weeks to come. But anyway, it's called The Year of My Life. Everything is the year of my life. That's a giant umbrella I write under. The nonfiction stream is The Year of My Life, Reminiscences and Rants, Case Politics. It's whatever the subject is. And I write about how growing up, I grew up in a Democratic household. Uh, My friend Dave grew up in a Republican household. His father was a politician and went on to become mayor of our town for many years. And not only were Dave and I friends, but his folks and my friends and my his folks and my folks were really close friends. And in the book I write that I would love to tell you about how when we got together uh, there were arguments and yelling and name calling and everything else, but we didn't have that. That's uh, like my life. That sounds exactly like my life. My uh, parents would have uh, dinner parties where they would discuss politics. It would be a lively discussion, not an argument. It would be a discussion. I, that's how I grew up. I mean, I was eavesdropping on the adult conversations and later on have, uh, watching my dad talk to anybody, anywhere about politics, anytime, any place. And it was friendly. And, I mean, these are polar opposites to my dad. Um and he would have a wonderful chat with people, um, people that were I, – I was in a play, and one of the actors who was in the play was a very, very nice man. 
a, a politically polar opposite of my dad, and uh, we were early for one of our rehearsals, and dad and him got into this huge discussion about the current politics at the time. Not, it was friendly. It was sweet, even. Um, and then they they would laugh, and uh, and then Dad would leave because he was dropping me off because my car was broken, and that was a whole thing. I mean, I still think it's sad. It's a loss to the world that people can't have a chat like that. You know, I I don't I don't like it. <laughs> Back then, and I'm gonna I'm not gonna say. I hate when people say back then because as as the, as the opening of of the story goes, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So Good it wasn't always so great. Right. Another but, reporter. But, <laughs> but as the story, but it, but it didn't make you a bad person. It Mm-mm. just made you somebody who had a different point of view. And it's interesting to listen to it. You know, um, I'll never forget on on the old, the original years of Saturday Night Live when uh, Jane Curtin and Dan Aykroyd would do a takeoff of a CNN uh, show called Point Counterpoint and they would get up there and it was all for laughs. They would get up there, and Dan Aykroyd would say something, and Jane Curtin would come back with a totally different opinion, and there'd be a pause. And Dan Aykroyd would look at Jane Curtin and go, Jane, you ignorant slut. And everybody laughed because it was a joke. And nowadays, people believe it. Yeah, my brother brought that up last night about that exact same thing. He says, today, that wouldn't play. No, it wouldn't. And people it wouldn't, wouldn't be allowed. Laugh. Yeah. No, they couldn't, they couldn't do it. But people took it for what it was. It was just comedy. And these days, if you have a differing opinion, people take it seriously. You're not only uh, you not only have a differing opinion. You're a bad person. You're an immoral person. You're you name it, and it's on both sides. It's not only on one side of the aisle. It's almost like you have to take a stand on one side or the other. You can't have both. And your friends better be on one side. They can't be on the other side. I think it's a loss. I really do think it's a loss that you can't have an open, honest, intelligent, and calm discussion about politics from all sides. Um, Like I said, at a dinner party. You can't do it unless you want to have a battle at your dinner party and people having a fist fight later. And I have actually backed off from conversations at friends' houses when they have friends of theirs come over because I saw where it was going and, and I backed off just to defuse the situation. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is both sides, we seem to get locked in our own echo chambers. We like to hear the sounds of our own voice and our own opinions and we like to hear others 
reverberate our own voices and opinions in those chambers. And if you don't, we don't want to hear it. And it's on both sides. Not only one side. You can't have a fight with one side. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, I, I just think it's a know, loss. I think it's sad. We, we, yeah, you're right, because we can't have discussion anymore. You can only have discussion in tiny groups of people you really know, uh, but you can't have a broad discussion anymore. And do I don't know how we're going to change the, that. Do they actually have debating societies anymore? Because I can't see how that could happen anymore, at least about politics, because it would end up in a war. Well, actually, it might end up in a war, but the thing about having a debating society is the rules are laid out. One side is going to take one side, and the other side is going to take the other side. And so whether or not you believe it doesn't really matter. Uh, when you're in a debating society, you don't have to believe what you're talking about. You just have to make a strong argument. That's the whole idea. So yeah. you could probably have it, um, but it's not the people debating. It's the crowds around them. We have That's become true. more like sheep than we ever were. Um, yeah. That's obvious. Individualism is a thing of, it's a rare thing to find people who are individuals. People want to become part of a group. And I'm going to use the iPhone as an example. The iPhone is a good phone. It's not any better than any other phone. Right. But the iPhone is a status symbol. And the Apple marketing department, I, I kneel to them because they are probably the greatest marketing department in the world. Uh, they have created this thing that if you have an iPhone, you're special. You're in a special group. And people like to be in special groups. Now, how did you use this in your book? Well, I mean, in the prologue to my book on politics, um, I talked about how people, it's not that they actually want to get that involved in politics, but they love the bandwagon. They love jumping on the bandwagon and being part of the group. And if you were to ask most people who are in either group, whether it's the Republican side or the Democratic side, uh, what they actually believe in, what they'll end up doing is repeating candidate and party rhetoric. Uh, it's it's not like they're having independent thought anymore on either side. It's just they're part of the group. And one side wins and the other side loses, and hopefully... You're on the winning side because you can say, hey, I won, get over it. Or if you're on the losing side, you know, I'll get you next time. Uh, you're wrong, but I'll prove it later. So, I mean, we have this thing about being in groups, and we've lost the idea of being individuals. And I think until we get that back... Um, because I get into political discussions with people, and they end up just 
they, their arguments are regurgitated rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And when you try to ask them about specifics that they believe in, they don't have anything. And this is on both sides. And maybe social I, media has made that easier. I don't know, because it's easier to get this rhetoric or to be part of your own group. But I don't know. That is like a whole, that could be a whole new book, about uh, the history of individualism versus the group. I mean, if you look, I love history and I studied archaeology. So to me, um I love his just going back into it. But if you look at history, it's always been that. I mean, poor Socrates was against the group, uh, you know, and um all the different and the uh the women who uh, the and men who were witches were against the group. Well, they weren't really witches, but you know what I mean, they were accused of it. Right. Um but it's something we've always had an issue with that and and actually if you think about it what's going on right now is sort of like the witch trials in Salem it's like it, it, it's, a, it's almost like a mania it's very oh, weird <laughs> well group speak and I talk about group speak in the book can be a very powerful thing because it can bolster you. It can make you feel like you're more important than you are. If you talk in group speak instead of individual speak, you're already uh, part of a group that agrees with you. So that makes you more important. And I think a lot of times that's what people want. They want to raise up their importance and have backing. I, I mean, there is a thrill when you're on Facebook or whatever you're on and you say something and immediately a bunch of people come back and agree with you because your first thought is, hey, they're agreeing with me. I must be right. And now Not you've got that gang mentality. <laughs> Not necessarily, but it's that gang mentality. It's not only me anymore. Now, if you disagree with me, you're disagreeing with a number of people. So yeah, yeah. I think that's like the danger of the like button, because sometimes just hit people just hit like to um, oh yeah okay my friend just said something and they just click like they don't really read what you wrote, you know <laughs> they just click well, like uh, I, 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 and whatever. Form Facebook, Twitter, Instagram—it doesn't matter. Um, people just—they uh, go, "Oh, look, my favorite movie star said something." Click, like um, they probably haven't even read it. No, and and it's funny you should bring that up because when, a lot of people now get the majority of their news on social media, and so what social media has decided not social media, what the media has decided is it's more important to write the headline than the story because nine times out of ten, people will not go past that headline that they see on their social media feed. If the headline agrees with what they believe, they will tweet it or share it. 
they won't even read the article. And there have been many times where I've seen headlines, and then you go in and you read the article, and the headline really had very little to do with the actual article. Or, yeah, the, or the article may have been opposite of what the headline was, but it didn't matter. It's the headline that counted because nobody read the article. I've seen that, too, on, like, Facebook. Uh, I'm a minister, well, not a minister, a, um, a moderator on a couple of groups. And once in a while, somebody will post something that the person who moderated didn't pick up, and it would get reported. And you look at it, and you're like, why is this being reported? And sometimes it's because they don't like the person. Like, uh, uh, And other times it's because um, they were a Nazi or something like that. Then I, yeah, you can see why it's being reported, and you want to get rid of that. But you know oh, what yeah, I mean? Sometimes Nazis are bad guys. Yeah, Nazis are bad, no matter what. Um, but other times, just, oh, well, we don't like this girl. And I'm like, but there's no reason for it. It was just about her clothes. It had no, it, was, That's right. it wasn't about, it was just that they don't like her, so they reported it. You know, stuff like that. But, it's just. But see, they write that headline so that you don't have to read the article. They write the headline so that it will either agree or disagree with your opinion, no matter what the article says. And on that basis, you will share it or retweet it, and they make money. That's ridiculous. I think it's sad. Well, I grew grew up um, dating me, but I mean, I grew up, Walter Cronkite, you know, and I just can't imagine Walter Cronkite going just by a headline, you know. <laughs> no, and, but the other thing is we were more, we were a lot more trusting than nobody, nobody argued with Uncle Walter. Yeah. If If Walter Cronkite said something, that was it. Um, but you didn't know what that's another thing that I kind of missed from back then. They just reported. They, they, ha- I had no idea. I still don't care, and I don't know what Walter uh, Crockett's politics was, or Hugh Downs, or David Brinkley. You don't, you don't know what their politics is. They didn't. T- it wasn't. They, it, they weren't a propaganda. They just reported the news. That's Which is what, what they I was. That was their job to report the news and not put their personal feelings. Whether or not they agreed with what they were reporting didn't really matter. Exactly. When I was in journalism school, one one of the first things we learned was that you can skew an article by what you put into it or what you leave out of it. No article is ever objective because... You only have so much space. You only have so much time. You can't put all the pros and cons into an article. And you're going to leave something out or put something in. Mostly you're going to leave something out. And It's just the facts. It's just what's happening. Yeah. That's what it's supposed the, to be. The, 
Right. And so back then, the reporting was very straightforward. This is what's happening. And now the news, you know. Uh, They didn't go for any analysis or anything. They basically gave you headlines. And it, and there was a, there was a, you know like they have opinion pieces and there was there was there was analysis but it wasn't it wasn't their opinion unless they said this is you know they had that feature where they have an opinion piece and then they said this is my opinion this is what I'm thinking it was really straightforward you knew when they were giving an opinion and when they were giving the news it was they were separated. Yeah, but- but see, here's the thing. Back then, say, let's take Walter Cronkite. There were three networks, mm-hmm. and Walter Cronkite and Huntley Brinkley, and I'm trying to think of who was on ABC, and I can picture him. I just can't think of his name. Um, but Walter Cronkite would never come out with his opinion because if he came out with his opinion, everybody would follow it. Could, either everybody would follow it, or if you didn't agree with it, you'd stop watching him. Yeah. And if you stopped watching him, then viewership would go down, the battle would change, the networks would go down in rankings, and money would be lost. So they could never, I think Peter Jennings might have been on ABC, they, they could never, ever give their opinions. Because it could cost the network a fortune. Now, they didn't have social media back then. Uh-uh. Had they had social media, it might have been different. But it was very controlled because there was no social media. Everything went through the networks and had to be approved, even your private life. And you didn't say anything outside of the studio. That's another thing. You, yeah. Nobody knew what, and, and you really—it wasn't your right to know what the reporter's private life was. Just like it's not your right to know what every—I mean, even, there was always yellow journalism and all that other stuff. But it's not your right to know what somebody's life is just because they're famous. It always makes me—it actually gets to me when uh, they start. Um, going digging into somebody's personal life. I mean, unless they're a killer or a Nazi or something like that, I don't I don't really understand why they care. Well, I'll tell you, you, you touch on something. Um, when I, I lived in L.A. for a number of years, and I was a feature writer for magazines, and I specialized in celebrity profiles. And at one point, I decided to take a break because I could see that things were changing. And I decided to take a break. And I took a job in research with Star Magazine. And in those days, Star Magazine and the National Enquirer were two separate and distinct companies. Now they're all under one umbrella company, I believe. But I walked away from that job, and it was a, for the times, this is back in the 80s, it was a good-paying job, 
because the editor knew that I had been in a wheelchair. And Lisa Marie Presley was about to have a baby at St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica. And he wanted me to be at the hospital when she had the baby. And I was going to take another, in a wheelchair, and I was going to take another um, reporter with me, and she was going to dress like a nurse. And we were going to be at that hospital so that we could get a photo of, the first photo of Lisa Marie's baby. God. And the Inquirer, we didn't have as much money as the Inquirer. The Inquirer was based out of Florida, and they would fly in with suitcases full of money, and their objective was the same. They wanted to get the first photo. So it was basically spy versus spy. They wanted It was who's going to get the first photo. And it bothered me because I felt, as a journalist, that we were crossing some sort of privacy line. And I'll never forget yeah. One morning, I get a phone call like 8 o'clock in the morning, and it's from the editor. And he says, she's on the way to the hospital. you got to get down here, and we we have to get over to the hospital. And it had been bothering me because I knew it was coming. And I actually lied to him. I said, you know, I don't think I can get there because my car is not working right. I think it's a dead battery. And he says, don't worry, take a cab, get down here. They were in Beverly Hills. I was in Canoga Park at the time, in the valley. And uh, he says, well, take a cab, get down here, and you know we'll get you to the hospital. And I hung up the phone, and I thought, uh, thought about it. And one of the things he said to me was, you wanted to be a tabloid journalist. And I hung up the phone and I thought about it and goes and thought to myself, you know, I never wanted to be a tabloid journalist. That's not why I went to journalism school. And I called him back and I said, you know what? I think we're crossing some sort of a line here. I can't do this. Get someone else. And he gave me the equivalent of, if you don't do this, you'll never work in this town again. And I knew that wasn't true because I had a pretty good reputation with other magazines. Um, but it bothered me because I saw what was yeah. happening. And I walked away from it. And it was a good-paying job. Uh, it's sort of like when... Anybody... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, if anybody's ever thinking of doing that, it hurts the first time, but it gets easier after that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, it reminds me of like when Princess Diana uh, got killed, and they they actually took a picture of her dead under uh, in the car. Well, Why is that news? You know, it's I don't, funny you it, should it was, bring that they up. They didn't do it. Well, it's funny you should bring that up because several weeks later, or about a month later, I moved out to Las Vegas. I left Los Angeles. And after that, I'm watching the news one night, and Larry King Live is on. Remember that old CNN show? Yes. And he's talking with my old editor from The Star. And it was after 
Diana had died in a car wreck, and they were talking about the photos. And my old editor says, well, you know, Larry, um, we weren't offered the photos, but if we had been, we would have turned them down. And I almost went through the television because I was saying to myself, you are such a liar. He didn't say we weren't offered the photos. He goes, we wouldn't have put those photos in our magazine. He didn't say we weren't offered them. Uh, and I almost went because I said, you're such a liar. You didn't use them because you weren't offered them. You, you couldn't get them. If they had been able to get their hands on it, they would have published it all over the star. You know, and yet he was saying, "Oh, we wouldn't. We would never have published those photos." Yeah, you would have. You can lie to me. Re- you can't lie to me. I can't remember who took the picture, but he said, "Well, she looked great, dead." Yeah, yeah that's like saying he looks so peaceful. He's never looked better. No, he's dead. <laughs> he's looked better. It's just, so. It just makes me so angry. Yeah, it's, I, I, but that's that's the individual against the group right there. Yeah, I mean, but in my case, being the individual cost me a job. Uh, I'm not complaining because if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have ended up in Las Vegas, which is a city I love. Um, so you know, it all worked out for the best. But I don't know how many people would have said, do I go with my integrity or do do I go with the paycheck? And in in my case, I went with my integrity. And, you know, other people might have said, I'll go with the paycheck. I don't know. Yeah. It also really depends. I mean... I think that you made the right decision, but if you have a family, you have a baby that just got born and you have a wife that might be ill or something like that, as opposed to... Well, I mean, yeah, but again, again, that's a a whole new discussion, but the fact of the matter is if I had stayed with them for those reasons, and done what he wanted me to do, I would have been going against who I was as a person. That's yeah, I I I agree. I I was just uh, being devil's advocate. And that would have stayed you know, with that. me. That would have stayed with me a lot longer. The kicker of the story yeah. is no one got any photos. Good. <laughs> so you know, but I but, I just that's line, private. It's just wrong. And that's what I felt, you know. Um, But one of the reasons I left L.A., it wasn't the only reason I left L.A., but that was one of the reasons, probably the the straw that broke the camel's back. But I saw how the industry was changing. Um, It was becoming the industry of gotcha. You know, let's catch that celebrity. Let's get them off guard. Um I wrote three or four thousand word uh, profiles. I would sit with somebody for hours and do research. And in those days, there was no internet. It was actual, you know, nuts and bolts in the library. 
microfish research. Um, and then I would write this long profile about their entire life. And I saw that was changing. Um, people wanted sensationalism. They wanted it faster. They wanted less words. The attention span was getting less. And this thing called the Internet was starting to come in, and I could see it happening. Uh, that magazines in their physical state were going to decrease in importance. And uh, so there were a lot of factors involved. But I didn't like the idea that journalism was becoming sensational was more important than factual. Yeah. And that's, I think that's I think what that's... bothered me the most. I think it's so sad, and but it's true. It's just, and it's worse now. Oh, it, it's much worse. I would never articles that I would write that were three or four thousand words are now six to eight hundred words, a few questions, and a little bit of opinion. And I couldn't write that. You know, it's, yeah. it's just, but it's what people want. Um, but you know, so. You evolve, and so I, I evolved from a magazine writer to now an author. Yep. And I can put um, I can put my opinion in my books in the form of other characters. Oh, um, we're coming to the end, so I want you to um, what dates is your is the new book out, or what date will yeah. it be out? The new book probably will not be out until early next year. Oh, uh, oh, you're still working on it. Still working on it because it is pretty ambitious kind of take on the world. My character takes <laughs> on the world. We're, we're going to bring in a whole lot of things at one time. A lot has happened over the last two years. And even though, and by the way, one thing I am not Oh, I shouldn't say that. I put a lot of thought into my title. The first book is called The Year of My Life, VR.com, Year One. And after a lot of thought, I decided that the next book's going to be called The Year of My Life, VR.com, Year Two. Uh, and, you know, it took a lot of thought. <laughs> <laughs> the, years, the years are not necessarily chronological. Um, so it'll be the next year, and it'll be kind of a compilation of everything that happened last year and this year. Because last year, last year not much happened. I mean, big things happened and then everything shut down. And my characters rely on the fact that everything is open uh, for a lot of reasons. They travel to a bunch of places. They don't travel by conventional means, uh, but they still travel. So even though there was a lockdown, even though there was a quarantine, my characters could still travel, but because of the way things were for most of last year, there was nothing to do when they got there. Yeah. Um, so what I decided to do was instead of writing it about last year, I would do it as last year and this year as it's opening up. And there'll be a few surprises, and my characters are growing, and changing and, and everything that happened in the last two years and more uh, 
including a mystery that I won't talk about uh, yet, because it'll be in the book, uh, will be all incorporated into year two. But in the meantime, I am now cranking up the continuum, which is the website version of the story. Uh, The last entry I had in there was, and then everything stopped. Yeah. And now... And now I'm opening everything up again. And so they're going to continue on the website uh, into the next book, which will be another mystery and self-contained, and then go back into the continuum. Could you give your website address? Could you give your website address so people can find it? Website address is the same address as the book title. The Year of My Life, VR.com, Victor Roberts. Or virtual reality. The year of my life is virtual reality. And um, I will tell you this because it's in the first book. It's the year of my life, virtual reality. But it's also the year of my life, Victoria Roswell, which is the name this character takes. Ah. And Roswell, obviously. Roswell Roswell. after Roswell in Mexico. And we describe how that how we yeah how we we came upon that in a funny way. There's a lot of humor in the book, a lot of humor. That's, um, that's cool. Because it, basically, you're dealing with a cynical writer and a child, <laughs> because she doesn't know much about how Earthlings think. That's true. And she's an observer. Um, do you are you on social media? What do you, do you have a I'm, um? What is your All name the on the different social medias? Well, there's my main account, which is, uh, you know, my Mark, Mark Jacobson, but I also have the Year of My Life uh, and the Year of My Life VR on Facebook. On Twitter, it's the Year of My Life. On Instagram, it's the Year of My Life and the Year of My Life VR. Um, you can also, if you go to the Year of My Life, I believe it's, the Year of My Life on Facebook, you can click and contact me via um, WhatsApp. But uh, the best way, I've created the website so that the website is the engine that runs everything. Everything is on the website, including a way to give input, including a way to contact me, including a way, by the way, and I want to say this, I have a podcast, and the, the podcast is called Conversations, uh, I mean, it's called Beginnings, Conversations That Will Keep You Talking, it's on a lot of different platforms and growing, it's on Spotify, it's on Google Podcasts, it's on SoundCloud, it's on TuneIn, and it's growing. Uh, And it's not only about um, celebrities and authors and people who are important and writers and politicians. It just started, and the first person I talk with is Stephen L. Sears, who, as you know, was producer-writer for Xena and among other television shows. Uh, But um, I also want to hear interesting stories from everyday people. And so if you have an interesting story in your life or as part of your life or your life, uh, I want you to contact me and you can be a part of the podcast. 
I do the podcast kind of interesting because, for instance, uh, Steve's interview is almost two hours long, but it's broken down into 10-minute segments. So it's kind of like eating peanuts. You can listen to one, you can listen to six, you can listen to all of them at a time. Cool. Um, and that's the way that's and, the way it works. And the name of it, the podcast again? It's called Beginnings with an Exclamation Point, Conversations That Keep You Talking. Okay. And, and the main uh, po- you can get to it through, again, my website. There's a tab there to get to it, but it's also on TuneIn. And that brings you to SoundCloud, or you can actually listen to it through the website. But it's also on TuneIn and Spotify and Google, and there'll be more coming. And do you uh, have any virtual? I'm sorry. Do you have any virtual events or any um, kind of uh, uh, signings or uh, conventions or anything that you're going to be signing. doing? Well, the political book was written five years ago, before the 2016 election, and it's kind of dated at this point. So I don't really sign. That was a digital and a physical on-demand, print-on-demand book. The series, uh, The Year of My Life, VR.com, was written specifically as a digital book. And the reason it was was because within the book are links as you read the story. And if you want more information, you can click on those links and get more background. And it was created that way. It's meant to be a digital online type of book that's downloaded. It can be downloaded for free from every platform. I don't think there's a platform it can't be. It's been downloaded thousands of times around the world, many thousands of times. And all the links to that are on the website. Again, top of the page. It's free, even on Amazon. Um, There is no cost involved. And I am, uh, tomorrow I'll be doing, well, I'm starting something tomorrow called uh, basically the Writer's Writer on Writing. And what the Writer's Writer on Writing is, is we're going to talk to people about who want to write, whether it's novels or any kind of writing. Uh, It's a half-hour thing. It's free. Um even though I can work with people individually for a fee, these things are free. I I like to keep as many things free as possible. Um, and we're going to talk about understanding your main character. And that's tomorrow at uh, at 1 p.m. Pacific uh, Daylight Time. Uh, it's 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, it is 9 p.m. London time, and anywhere else you're on your own. So, okay. Uh, we're going to be doing that tomorrow, and that will be a continuing thing. And occasionally I do, uh, again, the online uh, video show. Uh, the one that's on there right now is with um, a magician, Arian Black, a female magician who's writing a book about female magicians. And we talked about what went into the research and everything for writing that book that she is finishing up as we speak. So I have a lot of things going on. Everything is on the website. Everything. Keep checking back on the website. That's the engine. 
All right. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Mark. I hope you enjoyed it. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. Thank you.